Revelation chapter 19. Tonight, Jesus comes back. Not literally tonight, but tonight the text that we're going to look at is the text in which Jesus returns. There is a day coming in which the events that you just heard read are going to happen. If this is your first time with us, uh, we are in the middle and really at the end of a study on the book of Revelation. You've missed most of the book, but you're here just in time for really the climax, the conclusion, and what we've been anticipating all through this study. The essence of the book of Revelation is the message that you see on the screen right now. God wins. Lest there be any doubt, lest there be any fear, lest there be trial and difficulty and temptation, lest there be pain and suffering, know, know that when all is said and done, God wins. Though there may be days, weeks, and months, and years that are hard and difficult. God is one day going to be victorious. And those who follow him will reign forever with him. That same message is equally piercing to those who are not followers or children of God. The message of the book of Revelation is you need to know that God is going to win. And if you are his enemy, that means that you are not on his side. And if you are not a child of God, if you're not repentant of your sin, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are going to be on the losing side. And we're going to see all that that means tonight. It's just like it's not one team gets a trophy and the other team doesn't. It's, it's eternal joy and pleasure versus eternal suffering and pain. The conclusion to be drawn from the book of Revelation is that the choice is obvious. There is no place that you would ever want to be, as described in this book, alive in these times, as an enemy of God. Well, we've seen so much take place over the course of this book, but what I want to ask you to do is turn back all the way to chapter one. Revelation chapter one, when we began this study several months ago now, we circled a verse that we said, this is the preparation verse, this is the target of the book of Revelation, this is essentially a summary of what, of what he wants everyone to know before he even gets into the content of the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 7, the tone is set for the entire book when John writes, Behold, he, Jesus, is coming. He's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Everyone is going to see him. Not just his children. No, verse 7 says, even those who pierced him, even those who killed him, even his enemies, they're going to see him. And you know what their response is going to be? It's not going to be one of joy. It's not going to be one of happiness. Verse 7 says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. This is happening. This is unavoidable. Amen. So be it. The message from the beginning of Revelation is that Jesus is coming back and every eye will see him. What's going to be emphasized in our text tonight in Revelation chapter 19 is the fact that every eye will see him and that for some, it will be the greatest day ever. 
And for others, it will be the worst. That's what is emphasized in Revelation chapter 19. He's coming back. And for some, that is the greatest message to ever hear. And for some, it is the worst message that you could ever hear. So with that in mind, turn back to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Is it familiar with a popular movie title, Return of the King? That is from what series? Wow, well done. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Great movie. It's one of the most money-making, profitable movies of its time when it was released. But that story pales in comparison to what we're going to see in this text tonight. This is not the return of the king. This is the return of the king of kings. That is what Jesus is called in Revelation chapter 19. He's not just any king. He is the king of all kings. And tonight, in this text that we see, he's coming back. This is when Jesus returns, when he comes to earth for the second time, when he comes in the cloud and every eye sees him. As we break this down tonight, we're going to break it down this way. Two polarizing experiences at the return of Christ. Two polarizing experiences at the return of Christ. When Jesus comes back, there are two sets of experiences that take place, and that's what Revelation 19 is about. The two different sets of experiences that take place at Jesus' return, and they're polarizing. They're complete opposites. They're not even remotely close to one another. They're, they're, they're running in opposite directions. They are polarizing experiences. As we break down this text tonight, we're going to see these two polarizing experiences are going to revolve around two groups of individuals. And that is going to be a group of believers in, in, in what they are doing as Jesus Christ returns. And then the second half of the chapter is going to look at unbelievers and what they are doing and enduring when Jesus Christ returns. So that's how this passage is laid out. And that's how we're going to structure this tonight. Two polarizing experiences at the return of Christ. The first half of this chapter centers around what believers are doing as Jesus Christ returns. The first thing that we see in this text is that the believers are worshiping God. I know that's a small font. We've got a lot to get through here. The believers are worshiping God. They're worshiping God. We're picking up in verse 5 tonight. We just saw Babylon destroyed. The, the earthly city that is the epicenter of resistance to God is shattered. There is even worship in heaven that takes place as that is happening. But in verse 5, the attention is drawn to Jesus returning. And as he is returning, you know what's happening? His children are worshiping him. They are praising his name. Here's what they're doing. Look at verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I, John, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That scene is a description of epic worship that breaks out when Jesus Christ returns. And we see this worship really formulated in two categories about God. The first is that the believers are worshiping God for who he is. In verse 5, we see that the believers in this scene are worshiping God for, for, for who he is as God. We read in verse 5 that, that the, the cry... The cry, sorry, in verse, in verse 6 is where that's highlighted. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. Why? For the Lord, our God, the Almighty One, reigns. There, there, there's three descriptions that are given to God there, that he is Lord, that he is God, and that he is the Almighty One. And those have been illustrated all through the book of Revelation. And those who are crying this out in this scene have experienced and testified to all of God's characteristics as revealed by his actions throughout the entirety of this seven-year seven period called the Tribulation. And so they, in this moment when Jesus returns, they're crying out, Hallelujah, praise be to God, the Almighty One, the Lord, the God. They sing praise to God for who he is, but they continue to describe not just who he is, but what he's done, what he's done. And that's described in verse six. It begins in verse six and it goes through verse seven, eight, and nine as to all the things that God has done. And this is the reason, the reason that they're ascribing praise to God. Why do they worship the almighty one, the, the Lord, the God? Because, end of verse six, he reigns. He, he rules. And, and when I say he rules, it's not like, not like the compliment that we may give each other, like you rule. It's like literally he sets up his throne and rules with an iron rod. He reigns on the earth. He's in charge. He's sovereign. And there's no one who can, who can overthrow his authority. He reigns. Praise and worship is being directed to God for what he does. He reigns. But not only that, verse 7 Verse 7, why are they singing hallelujah? Why is there epic praise happening at this moment? Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. They are rejoicing. They are singing hallelujah because there is a marriage that's about to go down. Which is fascinating because this seems like weird timing for a marriage to be happening. So what is this marriage that's described in Revelation chapter 19? Well, this, this marriage, this coming together, this uniting of, of two people is a picture of Jesus Christ and him finally being united to those who have proclaimed his name and identified him as Savior and Lord who have repented of their sins and who have overcome. Jesus returns to earth and he is finally reunited with his people. Now there's absolutely a sense where, where we are united with Christ right now. But when this day comes, it's called a wedding. It's called a wedding. 
And there's a wedding supper. There's a celebration. And there's a feast that's going to happen because finally, finally, Jesus has returned. Jesus is described as the bridegroom. He is the husband in the scene. And he comes back for his wife. And and they are finally joined together. It's a wedding. It's a wedding. And that that wedding is going to lead to a feast. Look look at verse 8. This this bride, the the children of God, the the, the church in picture here, they are wearing wedding clothes. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The church is ready for this marriage. She's wearing the right clothes. Now, we've seen this terminology of clothing all through the book of Revelation, that, that we are to put on white garments. You know, we're never told what those white garments are until Revelation chapter 19 in this text. You know what those white garments are that we're all told to put on? The white garments, verse 8, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The white garments that that the church is supposed to clothe it in itself in are, are, are righteous acts. It's living a life that brings glory to God. You know why they're singing praise to God? Because Jesus is coming back to be reunited with his bride. And, and, and he has done amazing things in his bride. He has allowed her to, to wear what she needs to wear for this wedding day. He has enabled her to be righteous. Look, look at verse 9. Then he said to me, right, blessed, happy, fortunate, well off. Blessed are the ones who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. All those who know God are worshiping in this moment because the wedding is happening. And those who come to this wedding, those are the ones who are truly blessed. So God is worshiped for who he is, for what he's done. It's a funny little scene in in verse 9 and 10. He's told to write these things down and and, and there's so much worship taking place in this scene. John is so bound up in the worship that he's seen that he just falls down and starts worshiping the person telling him this. So what happens in verse 9. He falls, verse 10, I fell at my feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant. This is an angel. John falls down to worship him. He says, don't worship me. The end of verse 10, worship God. Worship God for what he has done. That brings us to a second polarizing experience. We've already talked about it. It's embedded within this. But before that, this principle, I think, is so important to this text. And that is that the attitude of the believer is the one of anticipation of Christ's return. Look at verse 7. Look at the emotions the attitude of those who are worshiping God at this reuniting of Christ in his church. Let us rejoice. Let us be glad. Let us give glory to him. 
There's there's inexpressible joy for the worshipers of God here. As Jesus is coming back, they, they are joyful, they are glad, they are ascribing glory to God, and they can do nothing else. Rejoice, be glad, give glory. Their emotions, their attitude is finally he's here. Finally he's coming back. That is the attitude of the believer. It's one of anticipation of Christ's return. That when that moment comes, the believers are saying, hallelujah, it's finally here. We've been waiting for this for so long. And he, our king and our Lord, is returning. He's coming back for us. He's coming back to be be married to us. That's the attitude of the believer. Anticipating Jesus Christ's return. Looking forward to that day. And and that is what's manifested in in the second second part of what these believers are doing in these polarizing experiences. They're enjoying the wedding. Not only are they worshiping God, believers are enjoying the wedding. And in part, that, that wedding is described in everything that they're worshiping God for. They're worshiping God because of the wedding. Because Jesus is coming back to be reunited with his bride. But that, that being said, one of the primary things that's being highlighted in this chapter, and we're going to see in a little bit, is that the believers, they get to enjoy the wedding. Like, they just get to sit back and enjoy what's taking place. They're worshiping God in it, and they're enjoying what's happening. They're enjoying the wedding of the Lamb. But there's a third, third event that's taking place here and what believers are doing that's highlighted in Revelation chapter 19. And that is that they're beholding the glorious King. They're not just worshiping God, they're not just enjoying the wedding of the Lamb, but they are Beholding the glorious king. And that's highlighted in verses 11 down through verse 16. Look at what John sees. This is unbelievable and it's reminiscent of what he saw in chapter 1. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the wild press of his fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords the believers are worshiping they're enjoying in anticipation of what's about to come in this wedding and they're beholding the glorious Christ the glorious King who is descending from the clouds that's an amazing scene Verses 11 through 16, that's the return of Jesus. You know what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back? That's it. That is Jesus' return. Now, many of the same characteristics in verses 11 through 16 are exactly what we saw in chapter 1. We call that the glorious Christ. When we saw Jesus in all of his glory being revealed before John, these are amazing descriptions of Christ in his glory at his return. No doubt there are some terrifying things in those verses. We see what we saw in chapter one. There's eyes of fire, a sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to, he's coming in wrath and he's going to tread the wine press it's described in his wrath. We'll see that in a minute. 
But if you know Christ, there's nothing to fear in this scene. As John describes this scene, it's one where the believers sit back and they behold the glorious king. What they see is a sight for sore eyes as they have endured pain and suffering and now the glorious king returns. They behold him. You look at this and you see the glorious king returning for his bride. That bride, I believe in this text, that bride is you if you are a follower of Christ. In this moment, what what is described of believers here is a description of what you will do in this moment if you are a follower of Christ. Worshiping God. Enjoying the wedding of the Lamb. Beholding the glorious King. But that is not the experience of everyone. The second half of these polarizing experiences is a description of what unbelievers are enduring (coughs) during these final moments. In the first one, there's overlap. It's going to be exactly the same verses we just looked at, but I think these verses are intended to go both ways. So the two polarizing experiences of Christ's return, we've seen what the believers are doing, but the unbelievers, they're not beholding the glorious king. They're beholding the terrifying king. It's the same verses, verses 11 through 16. But when you read these verses from the perspective of a believer, you see that and you, you, you can utter what is uttered by the believers in this text. Hallelujah, for the king has returned. But if you are not a child of God, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, these verses in 11 through 16 are the most terrifying thing imaginable. Because what is seen here from the perspective of an unbeliever is not a pleasant scene. It's terrifying, and it's meant to be terrifying. Your position before an authority directly affects your response to that authority's presence. If you are on God's side when Jesus returns, it is great. And if you're not when Jesus returns, it's terrible. And just how terrible it is is outlined in this chapter. I wasn't... I was growing up, I'm, I'm the oldest of five. Uh, I got four younger siblings. And I wasn't always as nice to my younger siblings as I should have been and as nice to my younger siblings as I know you all are. Yeah, I remember a time my, my sister and I, just a couple years younger than me, were getting in an argument. and uh, I was young, stupid, and probably not saved, but I threw something at her. I threw, a, I threw a pencil at her. Don't throw pencils at your siblings. But it, like, it... it it was, it was kind of like a throwing knife, like it went and it, and it went, it just point, like point, right? Kind of like stuck right above her eye. And I didn't mean to do it. Like I, it was half a joke. I was just throwing a pen. It was innocent, right? Throw a pencil at somebody. Do that all the time. Right? You guys throw pencils at people. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. I remember like, and so she starts crying. And what every older brother does when their younger sibling starts crying and they cause the pain is you sprint towards them and cover up their mouth, right? Lest, lest mom and dad hear. So, Abby, Abby's, my sister Abby's got blood running down her eye, uh, right above her. I didn't hit her eye, right above her eye. And, uh, and I have her, I have her like, in a headlock with my hand over her mouth. And then my mom walks in the door. 
And uh, when my mom walked in the door, Addie smiled. Because I was guilty. Like, there was, I was, she had blood and I had, it was, and it was the most horrifying thing I could have. There was no worse person that could have walked through that door than my mom in that moment. Anybody else but my mom walking through that door. Because to myself, my mom was the judge. To Abby, she was the savior. She was the savior. And so in that moment, like there were two complete opposite reactions to the same person. And it's because of our position before that person. I was guilty. And so before that person, I'm now terrified. And she, who was innocent and a victim, now sees that person. And, and, and she couldn't be happier at her arrival. Her arrival was her salvation and my condemnation. That, that's a very similar event to what we see here in Revelation chapter 19. As Jesus returns, the believers see their Savior and they're thrilled with joy and with worship. But unbelievers see the return of the same Savior and it drives them to terror and horror because there's no one worse that they can be seeing because they've rejected this Savior. That's what's happening in this scene. And so these very same verses, and I think I have this, this laid out for you, the, the, the same event that produces joy in God's children produces horror in God's enemies. I've, I've said it so many times all through this, all through this study, and I'll say it again. There's, there's no reason that you would ever want to be alive right here and to be God's enemy. The conclusion from the book of Revelation is that it's, a, it's an obvious choice. Why would you reject Christ? Why would you not live faithfully to Christ? He wins. Unbelievers are beholding the terrifying king while believers are beholding the glorious king. Unbelievers also are assembling for the great supper of God. This, these verses are crazy. You look over to the other side. Worship of God, terror before God. Enjoying the wedding of the Lamb, assembling for the great supper of God. There's some mirror images that are happening here, but they're opposites. As unbelievers are assembling for the great supper of God, that is not the wedding feast. That is reserved for those who have, not, who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Savior and repented of their sin. Unbelievers, they also gather for a feast. But it's a very different feast. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled 
to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Unbelievers are gathering for the great supper of God. You know what this supper is? It's the supper in which these birds that are described here, and I I don't know if they're literal birds or, or heavenly birds or what, but they gather for the supper in which they are the feast. The enemies of God gather together so that they can be killed and eaten. Again, the choice is obvious. Believers of God in this moment are enjoying the wedding of the Lamb. Unbelievers in this moment are gathering themselves to be a feast. They're going to be killed and devoured. There is not a man that is left standing after this because Jesus is coming and he's going to wipe out all who are opposed to him. And so that's, that's the last piece that's described here. The, the last thing that these unbelievers endure in this, this return of Christ is suffering. They, they suffer death and destruction. This is it. This is the conclusion. This is the climax to all that we have seen through this whole book. We've seen God's wrath being poured out upon mankind. This is the end. All of mankind gathers together. We saw in verse 19, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, they assemble to make war against Jesus Christ in verse 19. They've come together because they're going to overthrow Jesus, they think. They see him coming down and they're going to take him out. But verse 20, It's not much of a battle. The beast was seized. That is the Antichrist. The beast, the Antichrist was seized. With him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire alive, burning with brimstone. It's just a flash And these two earthly forces who have led the world in opposition to God are gone. They're seized. Jesus grabs them and throws them into hell. Verse 21, and the rest, everyone else, the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's it. That's, that's the end. It's, it's, it's not a battle. They gather for battle to overthrow the king. And in one fell swoop, Jesus wipes them out. He seizes their leaders, throws them into hell, and kills the rest. And then this great supper takes place where the birds come down and feast on the flesh of everyone who has been killed. The most powerful men on earth stand completely helpless before Jesus Christ. The Antichrist, the false prophet, the kings, the commanders, the slaves, and the free men. They stand helpless before Jesus. Revelation was written 
to produce faithfulness and repentance in those who hear it. This is an intense scene that we see tonight. That's intense, man. You're exposed to this scene so that you would hear this and say, I need to remain faithful to Jesus. Because because God, God wins. Jesus wins. There's no other place I want to be than on his side, allegiant and devoted and faithful to him. So you find yourself in one of two positions tonight, and it's on one of the two sides that we saw, either as a believer and as an unbeliever. This day is coming. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. How will you respond in that moment? The answer to that question is found as we examine and look at our own lives now. Am I anticipating that moment now? Am I living in light of his return now? Revelation is written to churches so that they would examine that in their own lives. And I hope that you can do the same. If you have questions about these, talk to your small group leaders. They're here to answer those questions. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father.